and welcome to Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDLL 91.9 FM Kenai Soldatna, listener-supported public radio for the central Kenai Peninsula. As always, thanks to Recess Duty for playing us in with our theme song. Got a lot of good interviews and segments for you today, but as always, let's get started with beer news. Naptown Brewing in Sterling has acquired a beverage dispensary license, which is the technical term for a full liquor license. According to owner Jake Walgenbach, Naptown has no plans to start serving spirits, but wants to be able to serve wine and have television screens in its tap room. This purchase is, of course, driven by Alaska's very restrictive rules for brewery tap room operations. On April 17th, Belgian Customs destroyed 2,352 cans of Miller High Life beer for improper labeling. The shipment was destined for Germany but was intercepted at the port of Antwerp after a complaint was received regarding its labels. While you might assume that this was because Miller was trying to pass off the contents as beer, the complaint was actually from the Comité Champagne, the Joint Trade Association for the Champagne Industry. The trade association charged that Miller's slogan, the champagne of beers, amounted to improper labeling. After investigating, Belgian Customs issued the following statement. Each year, we carry out thousands of checks on destinations of controlled origin, said Christian van der Weren, general administrator of the Belgian General Administration for Customs and Excise. If a counterfeit is proven, as in the case here, we also consult each other on the decision to destroy these goods and on the way in which we have them destroyed. In this instance, the cans were destroyed, quote, with the greatest respect for environmental concerns by ensuring that the entire batch, content and container is recycled in an eco-responsible way. May 5th will mark the 28th anniversary of Midnight Sun Brewing Company, Alaska's second oldest operating brewery. The Anchorage-based brewery is getting ready for an entire week of festivities that include release of an anniversary oak-aged imperial pale stout under the name 28, daily food specials, special daily selections from the seller of prior anniversary beers with an anniversary flight of years 24 through 28th available on May 5th, first Firkin Friday at the Loft featuring artist Malia Skriloff, birthday beer dinner at Tent City Tap House on Wednesday, May 3rd. This five-course meal runs from 6 to 9 p.m. with each course paired with a special beer for Midnight Sun. Tickets are $100 per person and are available on Eventbrite. Bottles of beer brewed 86 years ago for the coronation of Edward VIII, but which were left unopened upon the event's cancellation, will go on sale next month. Edward VIII ascended to the British throne in January 1936 following the death of his father, George V. But he abdicated in December of that year, ahead of his coronation, so that he could marry American divorcee Wallace Simpson. The coronation ale made to celebrate his crowning was therefore never sold, and only discovered 75 years later when work was being carried out in 2011 in the cellars of the Green King Brewery in the southeastern English town of Bury St. Edmunds. 
Several crates of the beer will be auctioned by the pub company on May 5th, the day before the coronation of King Charles III, commemorating the occasion. The proceeds from the sale will go to the Prince's Trust charity, which was founded by the king to support young people from disadvantaged communities. The Brewers Association has just released its annual report on the U.S. craft brewing industry in 2022, including the top 50 craft brewing companies of the past year. The report revealed that small and independent American craft brewers produced 24.3 million barrels of beer in 2022, with an overall beer market share by volume of 13.2%. These figures are in par with 2021's numbers, indicating steady growth for the industry. While the overall beer market shrank 3% by volume in 2022, the retail dollar value was estimated at $28.46 billion, representing a 24.6% market share and a 6% growth over 2021. The sales growth was attributed to pricing, a shift to smaller brewers, and a continued channel shift back to on-premise, which has a higher average retail value. Craft Brewers provided 189,413 direct jobs, a 9% increase from 2021, driven by growth in the number of breweries and a continued shift to hospitality-focused business models. The number of operating craft breweries reached an all-time high of 9,552 in 2022, including 2,035 microbreweries, 3,418 brew pubs, 3,838 taproom breweries, and 261 regional craft breweries. While there were 549 new brewery openings and 319 closings throughout the year, Openings decreased for a second consecutive year, indicating a more mature market. However, the closing rate remained relatively low at approximately 3%. Among the top 50 U.S. craft brewing companies, Alaskan Brewing ranked 32nd. That's it for Beer News. We'll be back in a minute with our first interview of the day. Zach Lanfear, one of the owners behind Bleeding Heart Brewery in Palmer. Thanks for taking the time out to talk to us. Appreciate it. So, your anniversary, man. Where does the time go? I can. Seems like just yesterday you guys were doing a Kickstarter. It was our seventh year anniversary. I don't know how time works. <laughs> I know that we legally opened in 2016. We established ourselves in 2014. Did all the. Uh, trademarks and uh, website domain purchases and Facebook and 2015 we kicked off the uh, Kickstarter and all of that and 2016 we officially opened the doors and we've moved locations we've expanded we've gotten a bigger system we've I mean we are on the growth pattern so speaking of growth what do you got lined up for the near future well, this summer, we're really excited about it being like our official first big tourist summer is, is at least our hope. Um, our outdoor seating area is all complete and finished. The indoors is all done. No new construction this year. We also have a little shop inside Wild Haven Co. Uh, Wild Haven Company moved in 
to the front little third so you can still do uh, sip and shop. You can still get a beer and wander her area. She's got house plants and home goods. It's thoughtfully sourced goods for the heart and the home. And so we have this whole shared community inside. We now have expanded storage on the outside. So everything kind of has come together for this summer. So we're really hoping to just lean into it. Um, we've got new menu items coming out. We've got more beers, new beers coming out this summer and fall. And we're really hoping to just, uh, you know, capitalize on this first big tourist summer since, you know, 2019. How's your staffing? It seems to be everybody's perennial complaint. So our goal also is to keep the staff we have, play the game with the same team we went into this with. We still have Rick doing meads and small batches. Uh, we've got our front of the house that's the same. Our back of the house is all the same. Um, our goal is to just keep moving forward with everybody who knows the drill. The, the, the hope is efficiency. You know, that we all know what we're doing now. We can move forward with this um, new summer. We can move forward with these new beers. And we are playing the same game, you know. Well, I don't think most people would have any trouble finding your, your guy's location because you're right there by the water tower and everything. Speaking of which, congratulations on getting the uh, the water tower light project off the ground and working. Great job there. But are you on anywhere else if people are looking for you? Well, in the Valley, we're in a number of different locations. I mean, and we have rotating handles all through Wasilla from locals to Meta Rose, Turkey Red, the Palmer Ale House always has us because we do a collaboration beer with them, Fish Hook Bar, Trout House, and then in the Peninsula area, we normally distribute through Turnigan is our, our small batch distribution company, and so it's wherever they can find. We were on tap at, I believe... In Seward, we're on tap at the Flamingo, and then down in Soldatna and Kenai, it's hit or miss wherever somebody can find a tab that isn't already handled by, you know, Kenai River and well, Cassocks. I, I heard some very good things about your uh, event that you had in Seward a couple of months ago. I didn't make it myself, but people who went over there were just a Twitter about how good the food was and the cocktails and everything like that so kudos to that like i said i heard a a ton of good things about that so thank you uh, yeah that event was a huge success uh in february doug came out also from kenai river and he enjoyed it him and his wife uh and they they gave us such good compliments and kudos and and his thing was you know as a brewer and in this industry we go to so many different beer pairings or cocktail pairings or beer dinners, etc. And sometimes you end up leaving hungry or you're not just kind of not satisfied. And he said that that was the best one that he has ever been to, which was super kind. I mean, it was awesome. The, the chefs there at the Flamingo and Chef Eric with Seward and, you know, our chefs uh, just did an amazing job and pairing it with our mead cocktails. Everybody just did it. It was incredible. So speaking of food, have you got any plans to uh, put in for a restaurant eating place license come the first of the year? That is on my docket um, to find out about this restaurant eating place license, the REPL. 
Uh, I've talked to also Doug about that. I talked to Eric about it. I talked to a number of industry people about what that might look like, and so um, that's the goal. Yeah, it, it sounds really like given that you guys the hours. And, yeah. yeah, you guys have got a kitchen and food service and everything like that. It sounds like it would be a good fit to basically loosen things up for you. I was talking just a couple a few days ago with Jake Walgenbach over at Naptown Brewery that's just opened and uh, apparently he's already gone out and bought himself a brewery dispensary license beverage dispensary oh, wow. license and I was like really oh you're gonna you know and he's like no I don't want to serve hard liquor I want to have television sets yep in my tap room so I was like wow okay and he wants to be able to serve wine to people yeah. that come in and drink beer. You know, I mean, not it's nothing extravagant that you're looking to do, but uh, because of our rather archaic, arcane archaic. laws, yep. where he, he's driven to do that. So, yeah, I was wondering if you guys were going to maybe look into that and see if it would advantage you. So, on the brewing front, what do you got? Got anything interesting coming out soon? Or are you just busy ramping up your flagship so you've got enough to pour for those uh, all those thirsty tourists that we hope are going to descend here in about a month well this weekend we've got the barbecue breakup shake-up event and we've we're putting on our uh, american lager for that because it goes well with barbecue uh and that is our american oligarch lager and then for cinco de mayo we're bringing back our Mexican malt liquor with tahine, corn, uh, tortillas, salt, lime. It's just a big, you know, nine and a half percent Mexican malt liquor. And we're rebrewing Ojo Rojo, which is basically a red eye, which is a spiced uh, amber, Mexican amber lager that's going to come out uh, for Cinco de Mayo. It's in the fermenter now and it's, it's crashing and all that. Uh, we're also coming out with a Cinco de Mayo menu simply for that weekend only. We'll have our slushies back, even though we still have like three feet of snow out here because <laughs> spring doesn't realize it's going to be Cinco de Mayo. Yeah. But yeah. we're bringing back our slushies. We're bringing back so uh, margarita slushies, which are seltzer slushies. It's uh, basically we start with our regular uncarbonated uh, seltzer that hits at about 8.5%. And we put it in the slushy machine, add a little bit of margarita or daiquiri mix to it, and bring it down to about 65 to 7%. And then for brewing over the course of the summer, we want to make sure we have at least probably two IPAs on tap. We want to have our lager. We want to have a pilsner. Um, we've always worked on running the gamut of different profiles and styles to have a sour, to have a stout, to have a brown, you know. And so our goal is to make sure we're hitting also that, like, lager and Pilsner crowd. Because right. the lightest beer we have is always the Valley Trash. But being at 7%, uh, that often is too much for tourists. Right. And so we're going to try to focus on having, like, a 5.5 uh, Pilsner lager on as well. That's always good to give people a different range. Can we expect to see you guys down here in uh, August for the uh, Kenai Peninsula Beer Festival, I hope? Oh, you know it. I'll be on my way. I've already clarified that I'll come down actually the night before this time. Usually I drive down the day of, but um, I'm going to come down the day before, stock my stuff over there with uh, Joe and, and Doug, 
and then crash out and then this way I can just set up the next day instead of driving all the way down and then setting up. Good. So what else? Anything exciting? Well, let's see. We've got, we're going to start doing outdoor markets uh, every one Saturday every month throughout the summer. Uh, Lucky Popper, as well as a bunch of other vendors, are doing outdoor markets, plus teaming up with Wild Haven Co. and Wild Flowerwood, or Wildwood Flower Company. Um, There's going to be quite a bit of outdoor market action happening uh, all throughout the summer. We're really excited about just as long as the weather cooperates, we've got some great outdoor seating and some great opportunity for sitting under the water tower and having a beer. Cool. Sounds great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, sir. My pleasure. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. When I first became interested in drinking good beer some 30 years ago, choices were simple. When you walked into a store, you were faced with just three categories. The giant domestic brands, Bud, Miller, and Coors, imported beers, and, if you were lucky, a couple of what were then called microbrews, but which today we would call craft beers. In those days, the problem wasn't recognizing craft beers, it was finding them at all. Fast forward to today, and things are very much different. Beer choices have expanded tremendously as the number of breweries has skyrocketed. Walk into a Fred Meyer, Brown Jug, or Oak and Keg, and you'll be confronted with literally dozens, if not hundreds, of beer choices, many of which are true craft brands. Complicating your choice further, there are many other beers which look like they are produced at small, independent breweries, but are actually being produced by the same mega corporations that churn out Bud, Miller, and Coors. It seems the managers of these corporations have been watching the same trends as the rest of us over the last few years. They've seen craft beer's market share grow at the expense of their flagship brands, so these Goliaths have developed a multi-pronged approach to fight back against those pesky Davids and their oh-so-tasty beers. The first prong might be called, if you can't beat them, imitate them. In the last decade, we've seen the big three breweries release numerous beers that to the uninformed consumer give every appearance of being craft beers. Watching commercial for the Belgian-inspired Blue Moon Wit Beer, you will never hear mention that it's actually produced by Coors in the same giant industrial plants that pump out Coors Light. When the Leinenkugel family touts their summer shandy beer in TV ads, they neglect to mention that they sold out lock, stock, and barrel to Miller back in 1988 and are being paid merely to shill for something they no longer actually produce. Anheuser-Busch joined the party with its line of shock top beers, whose labels never hint at who is actually producing them. Here's what the Brewers Association, the not-for-profit trade association dedicated to small and independent American craft brewers, had to say about this issue back in 2012. The large multinational brewers appear to be deliberately attempting to blur the lines between their crafty, craft-like beers and true craft beers from today's small and independent brewers. We call for transparency in brand ownership and for information to be clearly presented in a way that allows beer drinkers to make an informed choice about who brewed the beer they are drinking. Not surprisingly, this call for transparency has not been answered by the mega brewers. In an attempt to fight back, the Brewers Association created the Independent Craft Brewer Seal, 
a symbol to unify U.S. craft brewers and those who want to support them. This certified mark, an upside-down beer bottle, gives beer lovers an easy way to identify independent craft beer. While not every craft brewer uses the seal in its labeling, if a beer does have the seal, you can be confident that it is a small, independent brewer rather than a disguised product of one of the big boys. The seal has become even more important due to the second prong of the assault against craft brewers, one which might best be called, if you can't beat them, buy them. The huge brewing companies have gone on an unprecedented buying spree, snapping up formerly independent craft breweries left and right. This began with the purchase of Goose Island Brewing, a well-regarded brewery and brew pub in Chicago by Anheuser-Busch InBev in 2011 and shows no signs of stopping. At AB InBev, these purchased craft breweries are housed in a division known as the High End. Established in 2015, the High End includes brands such as Stella Artois and Shock Top, along with formerly independent breweries Goose Island, Blue Point, Ten Barrel, Elysian, Golden Road, Virtue Cider, Four Peaks, Breckenridge Brewery, Devil's Backbone, Spiked Seltzer, and Carbach Brewing Company. In 2017, AB InBev added the Asheville, North Carolina-based Wicked Weed Brewing to this portfolio. Only founded in 2012, Wicked Weed had already earned seven medals for its beers at the Great American Beer Festival before being swallowed up. Craft brewers are understandably concerned that the overall goal of these purchases is to confuse consumers as to what constitutes a real craft beer, thus propping up the slowly declining mass market beer brands. AB InBev has an annual U.S. advertising budget of $1.53 billion and currently produces 45.8% of the beer consumed in the United States, yet Goliath still seems to fear these tiny Davids and their beers. So what should you do as a consumer? Well, the first thing you have to decide is, do you even care? There are those who would say that it doesn't matter who makes your beer or where they do it. They would argue that you should judge a beer solely on its taste, appearance, and price. A pure cost-benefit analysis, if you will. They would contend that other concerns like independence and locality are extraneous and can be ignored. I understand and respect the logic of this argument, but I do not agree with it. For you see, I care where my beer comes from for the same reasons I care where my food comes from. Just like food, I believe locally brewed beer is fresher beer, which means better beer. I believe beer produced in small, independent breweries is more interesting and superior to beer produced in giant industrial plants, just as I believe wild salmon is better than its farmed cousin, and that the meat produced by free-range livestock or wild game is far superior to that churned out by factory farms. I think buying goods produced in our state, whether Alaskan-grown produce or locally produced beer, is much better for our economy than simply sending our dollars outside, like the colonial territory that we were for so long. The next logical question is, what can I do about it? First, the good news. Every brewery currently operating in Alaska meets the definition of a small, independent, and traditional brewery as established by the Brewers Association. Things become more challenging when you consider purchasing a beer from outside. It can be extremely difficult for the average consumer to stay informed and keep up with the seemingly constant stream of acquisitions. I'm a professional beer journalist, and even I often have trouble. 
In fact, it's this difficulty that the mega brewers are counting on with their confuse and conquer strategy. Besides looking for the independent craft beer seal, there is a clever technological solution to this problem, at least for those of you with smartphones. Like almost everything today, it seems there's an app for that. It's called Craft Check. This free app allows you to scan a beer's barcode or search by brewery name to instantly find out whether the beer you're looking at is an authentic craft brewery or just a crafty imitation from the big guys. The app contains information on thousands of craft breweries, with new entries added every week. Background updates ensure the app is always up to date for those buyouts so popular with the big brewers. It's an invaluable tool to have available if you truly care about who makes the beer you're thinking about buying. The decisions we make as consumers, when aggregated together by the free market, will decide what sort of beer choices we will have available in the future. In effect, every dollar we spend represents a vote for one thing or another. If enough of us are willing to vote with our pocketbooks for small, independent, and local breweries, and if we can keep the politicians who have been bought and paid for by the big brewing companies from screwing things up with anti-craft regulations and taxes, then we can all continue to enjoy a vibrant and exciting world of real craft beer. I intend to do my part. We'll be right back in a few moments with our next segment. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9, FM Kenai Soldatna. In our next segment, I'd like to discuss a term from sociology, the third place. The term was first coined by Ray Oldenburg in his influential 1989 book, The Great Good Place. The third place is the name given to social surroundings that are separate from the two usual social environments of home, the first place, and the workplace. Examples of potential third places would be environments such as churches, cafes, clubs, public libraries, or parks. In his book, Oldenburg argued that such third places are important for civil society, democracy, civic engagement, and establishing feelings of a sense of place in the individual. If the first place is the home and the second place is the workplace, it's the third place that serves as an anchor for community life and facilities and fosters broader, more creative interaction among people. Subsequent researchers have argued that a vibrant third place will display all or most of eight different characteristics. Number one, neutral ground. Occupants of third places have little to no obligation to be there. They are not tied down to the area financially, politically, legally, or otherwise, and are free to come and go as they please. Number two, a leveling place. Third places put no importance on an individual's status in society. Someone's economic or social status does not matter in a third place, allowing for a sense of commonality among its occupants. There are no prerequisites or requirements that would prevent acceptance or participation in the third place. Number three, conversation is the main activity. Playful and happy conversation is the main focus of activity in third places, although it is not required to be the only activity. The tone of conversation is usually lighthearted and humorous. Wit and good-natured playfulness are highly valued. Number four, accessibility and accommodation. 
Third places must be open and readily accessible to those who occupy them. They must also be accommodating, meaning they provide the wants of their inhabitants and all occupants feel their needs have been fulfilled. Number five, the regulars. Third places harbor a number of regulars that help give the space its tone and help set the mood and characteristics of the area. Regulars to third places also attract newcomers and are there to help someone new to the space feel welcome and accommodated. Number six, a low profile. Third places are characteristically wholesome. The inside of a third place is without extravagance or grandiosity and has a homely feel. Third places are never snobby or pretentious and are accepting of all types of individuals from several different walks of life. Number seven, the mood is playful. The tone of conversation in third places are never marked with tension or hostility. Instead, they have a playful nature where witty conversation and frivolous banter are not only common, but highly valued. Number eight, a home away from home. Occupants of third places will often have the same feelings of warmth, possession, and belonging as they would in their own home. They feel a piece of themselves is rooted in the space and gain spiritual regeneration by spending time there. There are many venues that could potentially fulfill the criteria just listed. In fact, among the venues which sociologists have identified as active third places are community centers, senior centers, coffee shops and cafes, bars and pubs, restaurants, shopping centers, stores, malls, markets, hair salons, barber and beauty shops, recreation centers, YMCAs, YWCAs, pools, movie theaters, churches, schools, colleges and universities, clubs and organizations, libraries, parks, and other places allowing for outdoor recreation, streets, neighbors' yards, homes and apartments, and events like neighborhood parties, block parties, cookouts, barbecues, town meetings, and bingo. Almost anywhere can be a third place if it fulfills the eight requirements that researchers have identified. I promised you that this story would eventually have something to do with beer, so let's bring the discussion back home. In the long list I just mentioned, bars and pubs were right there in the middle. In point of fact, the stereotypical neighborhood bar or pub is the quintessential third place. For a fictional example, just look to the TV series Cheers. The theme song makes it abundantly clear that it is meant to be a third place. Don't worry, I'm not going to attempt to sing, but here are the lyrics. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? All those nights when you've got no lights, the check is in the mail. And your little angel hung the cat up by its tail. And your third fiancé didn't show. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see the troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. In its essence, the entire show was about a group of regulars hanging out in their third place. If the bar pub third place has a big presence in fiction, it has an even bigger presence in reality. 
Walk into just about any craft brewery or brew pub in Alaska and you will find yourself in a third place. Thanks to the restrictions on entertainment imposed by the state, you can be very confident that conversation will be the main activity. You will find yourself sitting or standing next to someone who you may or may not already know, and you will be sharing this social space. The craft breweries of Alaska are not places where morose, silent drunks stare into their glasses in the wee hours of the morning, nor are they loud and raucous spaces full of 20-somethings looking for some action. No, they have the wholesome, low profile of a third place. Often when I find myself forced to defend Alaska's craft breweries against those forces which would seek to restrict or even destroy them, such as competing bar owners and neo-prohibitionists, I find myself making an economic argument. I talk about how much money the state rakes in in alcohol taxes, how many people are employed by the breweries, how much economic activity they generate, etc., etc. But there is also a sociological argument to be made. Third places are extremely valuable. Remember, Oldenburg argued that they were important for civil society, democracy, civic engagement, and establishing a sense of place, all critical aspects of our modern social fabric. Besides their economic contribution, craft breweries and brew pubs are places where we meet and mingle as equals, converse and communicate, and get to know each other as people rather than partisans. In today's highly polarized America, with so many people retreating socially into what amount to fortified tribal camps, anything which helps us resist this trend is valuable. As our social fabric phrase, we need all the places we can get to help knit it back together again, and that includes our craft breweries and brew pubs. Up next, an interview with Eric Slater, the owner of Seward Brewing Company. Eric, how are you doing today, sir? I'm great. How are you, Bill? I'm fine, fine. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. So, hey, you guys are opening up next Monday, right? Exactly, yeah. Uh, May 1st is our, our usually our usual uh, uh, opening for the season there, about beginning of May. And uh, always shoot for May 1st, but over the last couple of years, sometimes that gets postponed but we always hit may beginning of may though well great i'm sure you're looking forward to probably you and the rest of seward are looking forward to a really good tourist year after some slow times huh i think so yeah i I know cruise ships are up in seward this year we're looking at a lot more passengers that doesn't affect us as much as some of the other cities but it does help last year felt kind of like a normal season after a couple years of wonkiness so i think we're kind of back seward's back into the swing of things why don't you describe your operation there so we're a seasonal brew pub we're only open during the summertime it's in an old building right downtown in the old elks club there we don't distribute beer we just brew it here on premise we have a small restaurant we serve it here and it's the only place you can get it in town or anywhere in Alaska. We're open May through September, mid-September usually. We're going into our my 10th year of owning this operation. Cool. Well, congratulations on uh, a decade. What are you going to be having on tap when you open your doors on Monday, beer-wise? Well, we're going to start off with our, our uh, flagships. We have our Just Beer, which is my straight-up uh, fishing-style beer. It's like a, a Rainier or an Ole or something like that. 
and that's a, a tourist favorite for sure. We have our uh, Marathon Summer Ale. We've got our Juicy Swell IPA. It's like a hazy, juicy IPA. We have our TK421 Imperial Oatmeal Stout. I brewed up an 8% Saison that I'm really excited about. And then we're doing a 10-year beer, which is a Mexican-style lager, El Perro. That one, I've you know, it's 5% Mexican-style lager, straightforward. And I threw it on a spunning valve, so I keep the carbonation in there and all the flavor profiles. And I'm really stoked about how that one turned out. That uh, Saison sounds very interesting. I'll have to get over there and get me some of that. Yeah, so. yeah, it's, it's really good. I beefed it up for sure. And what about your food menu? What do you guys' menu look like? Yeah, food menu. We've got our, our favorites. You know, we have one of the best burgers on the peninsula. We, we do a hot chicken sandwich. Doing for years. Every year we kind of change up, tweak the menu based on how the winter went and get influenced on new things and want to try some new stuff. Got a, a cold Asian noodle salad that we're putting on there with a the chili crisp and a couple new entree items. The pho French dip with burnt end briskets and a pho broth that we make in house. I decided to revamp the pizza menu. We got a whole bunch of new wood fired pizzas that are going on the menu this year. Kind of trading it out. And then, um, yeah, we're shooting for six days this summer. What day you figure? We're going to be closed on Wednesdays from Wednesdays. now on. Wednesdays, okay. Yeah, right, so, so we're open Thursday through Tuesdays. Note to self, don't drive over on Wednesday. Yeah. Looking ahead, are you going to uh, come the first of the year when the new law takes effect? Do you get shipped into a restaurant eating place license? Is that your plan? Well, we already have the REPL and then uh, the brew pub license. So for us, we'd be, you know, we could we would be able to distribute, uh, self-distribute, which, you know, I've kind of been, I've been kind of not into that idea so much because I like just brewing it in house and putting it here and not having to deal with some more TTB regulations <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> but uh, I'm I've been approached by a couple places in town just in Seward locally, the cookery. Kevin and I are really good friends and chef buddies, and we've talked about doing, you know, a, a, just a, a collaborative beer between us to put on tap at his place, which I think would be fun. And then um, the Flamingo Lounge across the street, my friends Matt and Kellyanne own that now. It used to be Thorns Showcase. We've talked about putting a, a new seltzer on top for them. But other than that, I would, you know, I'm into just keeping it at my place and having people come down and check out the view and eat food here. You got any upcoming events? I mean, obviously you're opening, but any other events that uh, you want people to be aware of? Fourth of July is a huge deal here. We're right at the finish line. It's a great place to come in after the race and, and grab a beer and check out the view. And then over the summer, we've got some events going on, but nothing public. A lot of it's just private run out events. And then we usually try to get at some beer festivals. Talkeetna Beer Fest is one of my favorites. Uh, I know the Bleeding Heart guys are bugging me to get to Haynes this year, but I can't get there. Hopefully, we'll get over the one of the Kenai uh, Summer Fests over there. I was going to say, if you can make it over to the festival in August, that's a really nice one. That's always on my agenda, and, and if I've got the staff to, to get it done, I'm always there. So, anything else you want to tell everybody about? I think, you know, for us, like, it's Seward's got a great beer scene now. You know, we got Stony Creek Brewing and Greg. We're really good buddies. And we collaborate on a lot of ideas and share thoughts and ingredients. You know, Greg and I are really good friends. We try to uh, get together as much as possible and drink beer, talk about beer, and 
Uh, we're we're going to do a collaboration this summer as well. Uh, Bleeding Heart, we do a, a collab with them every year. Um, it's always freaky and fun. I think the Seward's really uh, becoming a pretty fun beer place. Greg and I have talked a lot about how we can get another little thing like beers by the bay down here at some point, maybe in the summertime or the fall, shoulder season, hosted by us. We're working on stuff, always throwing out ideas and trying to get people to come down here and check us out. Yeah, that would be cool if you guys could put something together, like you say, in the shoulder season. Yeah, we had an idea for, uh, we're going to do uh, like a, even a wintertime one, a December solstice one, where it was like, we want to just do all dark beers and invite everybody down here. The darkest part of the year, we're going to mm-hmm. do like a dark beer festival. That, <laughs> that would have been a really cool idea. Have, I'd go to that. Right? Yeah. yeah. I've talked to a lot of places and they're like, yes, somebody should do that. Well, hey, Eric, thank you so much for taking your time to talk with us. We appreciate it. Good well, luck. It's always good, a pleasure. Good luck on the opening on uh, Monday, and uh, look forward to trying your stuff. Yeah, come down this summer, stop by, and, and uh, have a beer. Uh, sure will. Thanks, Bill. So here we are with the winter that won't end and hoping for the dream of spring if the snow ever goes. So I thought this month's beer style should be one synonymous with the spring season. Bach. It's generally assumed that the first commercial Bach beer was brewed in the German town of Einbeck, located halfway between the cities of Hanover and Kassel. Einbeck had won fame for brewing and exporting a very tasty, strong beer in the Middle Ages. In 1368, Einbeck joined the Hanseatic League, which helped find customers for its beer in Scandinavia, Russia, Britain, and Flanders. The oldest written records mentioning beer from Einbeck is a receipt for two casks of Einbecker beer sold to the town of Sill on April 28, 1378. A key factor for the success of Einbeck's product was a unique system of quality control that had been established by its city council. Dozens of burgers were entitled to malt their own grain and make beer in their own cellar, but none of them were allowed to possess his own brew house. The brewing equipment was owned by the city, and the city council employed professional brewers who would take the brew kettle to the home of these burgers who wanted to brew. The brewmaster, a city employee, had to check the malt, oversee the actual brewing process, and later certify the finished product before it could be sold or exported. This procedure ensured that all the beer brewed in Einbeck followed the same recipe and met the same quality standards, regardless of which household had brewed it. This early form of standardizing a product came along with a set of marketing ideas that seem right out of a textbook for modern branding, although they've been applied for over 500 years. The beer from Einbeck was tested at one of the leading laboratories of its time, the medical school of the University of Salerno, where it was described as vinum bonum, Latin for good wine. In 1521, the beer received a celebrity endorsement from church reformer Martin Luther. When called upon to defend his ideas at the Diet of Worms, Luther brought along a jug filled with beer from Einbeck, which he drank in public, praising it as the best drink one can know. And most of all, Einbeck did a good job of branding its product as Einpockish beer, a term that was first shortened to Onapak by Bavarian consumers and then later to the modern name Bach. 
Shipments of Einbeck's beer to other towns in Germany continued to grow. In 1578, Munich spent 562 guilders on beer imported from Einbeck. It was time to copy their success. In 1617, the Hofbrauhaus in Munich hired Elias Pilcher, a brewer from Einbeck, to begin producing Bach beer locally. Bach beers were especially popular during the season of Lent in the spring, when strong beers had to replace at least some part of the food in the diets of devout Catholics. This practice led to the creation of a substyle of Bach, Doppelbach, which literally means double Bach. According to legend, the monks of the Pauliner Abbey in Munich wished to fast for the entire 40 days of Lent. However, they found that they could not sustain themselves for such a long period upon water alone. They hit upon the idea of brewing a very rich and nourishing beer, literally liquid bread, in the style of a Bach. Sustained by this new double Bach or Doppelbach, they were able to fulfill their vows. While the story may just be a legend, the possibility that it is true has been demonstrated experimentally. In 2014, home brewer and writer Derek Dellinger subsisted for 40 days only on a Doppelbach he had brewed. He was regularly monitored by a physician, and at the end of the experiment, he was determined to be in excellent health. In fact, his only complaint was that he was extremely bored with his Doppelbach diet and ready to go eat a cheeseburger. Another substyle of Bach is called the Ice Bach. This beer undergoes a partial freezing process called freeze distillation. Water has a higher freezing point than ethanol, so water freezes first, leaving the alcohol behind. When the water ice is removed, the remaining beer has more alcohol by volume than the original beer did. This style was an inspiration for one entry into the Alaskan Brewing Pilot series, its Imperial Bach. So what do box, doppelbox, and ice box look and taste like? Traditional Bach beers are light copper to brown in color, often with attractive garnet highlights and a large, creamy, persistent off-white head. There is a strong malt aroma, often with moderate amounts of rich melanoidins and or toasty overtones, and virtually no hop aroma. Malt elements are the dominant flavor on the palate and a clean, smooth taste from the use of lager yeast. Alcohol should be between 6.3 and 7.2% by volume. Doppelbachs are deep gold to dark brown in color, with darker versions often having ruby highlights. Aroma is similar to that of a Bach, but with even more malt notes. On the palate, the malt flavors are even more pronounced. Invariably, there will be an impression of alcoholic strength, but this should be smooth and warming rather than harsh or burning. Alcohol should be between 7 and 10% by volume. Ice Bachs are even more intense, with aromas dominated by a balance of rich, intense malt and a definite alcohol presence. The flavor profile is rich, sweet malt, balanced by the alcohol heat. The alcohol should be between 9 and 14% by volume. If you would like to sample beers in this style, you have a lot of choices. Imported versions of Bach and Doppelbachs are widely available. A couple of good choices are the Maybach and Doppelbach, brewed by Anger Brewery in Munich and available in four packs at Country Liquors in Kenai. Several other local breweries have produced beers in these styles on occasion. 
Midnight Sun has canned an excellent Maybach and offered bottled Doppelbachs in the past. A few years ago, Kenai River Brewing Company made a Doppelbach for the first Frozen River Festival, kegs of which have been occasionally re-released since. St. Elias Brewing Company often offers a Bach on its spring menu as well, so keep an eye out for that. Whatever style you prefer and wherever you find one, Bach beers make an excellent beer to celebrate the end of winter and the coming of spring. As we wrap up this month's show, I would like to let you all know that our next show in May is going to be a bit different. Instead of happening on the last Saturday, it will be at 1 p.m. on Saturday, May 13th, as part of KDLL's Spring Membership Drive. It will also be a live show with me and another local beer celebrity answering audience questions and asking beer trivia questions for prizes. I hope you can tune in. Until next time, cheers. Yeah.